Welcome to another episode of The Art Salon. I apologize for the delay, but I've been preoccupied with the news last week, as I'm sure many of you have been. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends on social media. To keep up with our latest guests and announcements, be sure to follow us at The Art Salon on Instagram. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit the support section on the Anchor website, where you can contribute to the podcast as little as $1 per month. It really helps. Today's guest is Arturo Sandoval. I will read a short bio taken from his website. Arturo Sandoval is one of the most dynamic and vivacious life performers of our time and has been seen by millions at the Oscars, at the Grammy Awards, and at the Billboard Awards. Arturo Sandoval reaches beyond the scope of mere effort. His struggles while in Cuba and since his defection have given him more energy and strength, urging him to accomplish and surpass his childhood dreams. Filled with a virtuoso capability, he desires nothing more than to share his gift with others who feel the same intense adoration for music as he does. One frequently speaks of Arturo Sandoval's virtuoso technical ability or his specialty in high notes, but he who has seen him play the piano, lyrically improvising a ballad, or has had the opportunity to enjoy the diversity of his music through his compositions from the most straight-ahead jazz, Latin jazz, or classical, knows that Arturo Sandoval is a prominent musician, and one recognizes that Arturo is one of the most brilliant, multifaceted, and renowned musicians of our time. Sandoval has received many awards and recognitions, including the 2013 Presidential Medal of Freedom. He was also awarded an honorary doctorate in fine arts from the University of Notre Dame in 2016, has won 10 Grammy Awards, has been awarded an Emmy, is a six-time Billboard Award winner, and received the 2015 Hispanic Heritage Award. I wanted to have Arturo Sandoval on not just because of his impressive career in music, but also because of his link to music as a life-saving career. When Sandoval says music has given him everything, he does not only mean that it has allowed him special opportunities, but rather that he literally owes his freedom to this beautiful art form. For this reason, he is the perfect guest to have on the art salon, especially now. Earlier this year, I recorded an in-depth episode about Cuba, demolishing the many myths and lies that the international community touts and have allowed this barbaric regime to sustain itself for far too long. I hope if you haven't, you take the time to listen to it as it will help contextualize this conversation. I would be remiss if I didn't address the subject of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Although I could say much at this time, I will only say this. In 1962, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics mobilized nuclear technologies to the island of Cuba in a chess move that put the entire world on the brink of annihilation. Had reason not for a sliver of a moment illuminated the minds of Kennedy, Khrushchev, and Castro, I would not be writing this and you would not be now hearing my voice. Contrary to what our accommodated lifestyles might tell us, not much has changed in the potentiality of a nuclear catastrophe since that time, and arsenals remain in place that could end the world many times over. When casually discussing the principle of mutually assured destruction as a defense, it seems many choose to willfully ignore the words contained within the mandate. Let us hope that the spirit of the goddess who emerged fully formed from her father's head, Athena, shines a light on the cavemen that are our global leadership once again, if only for a moment. And with that, I leave you with Arturo Sandoval. So I saw, we can talk about a lot of things, um, but I saw a couple posts of you throughout your career. I mean, you've been very vocal about this, about your relationship with Cuba and what's uh, happened there. And I think musically speaking, I find that very interesting in your case because uh, 
you probably have a relationship to how music has shaped your life that very few people can say they have because in some ways it was both your ticket out of Cuba but also like uh informed that that decision which must have been very hard in your life it's not as easy as all that right okay i have no no problem to talk about those topics but i'm going to tell you the very truth I'll be honest with you uh, it's so many beautiful and um, positive things to talk about that i prefer you don't mind to leave that thing probably by the end of our conversation absolutely that sounds very good so let's, tell me tell me then music. let's talk about music man that sounds fantastic tell me what you've been working on recently i know you're working on an album Yes, that's correct. We are preparing the, our new album. Is uh, we're going to be in studio very soon. But beside that, because those almost 14 months of confinement has been terrible on one side, but um, for me it has been productive on the other side because I've been writing. I don't know, I lost the count already how many pieces of music I wrote. And I recorded, I did so many, more than 450 videos in, in this 40 months, which is, uh, man, it's, it's a lot of material there, a lot, a lot. And, um, and also, I am discovering a, a new thing in my life that I never tried before. I'm talking about writing. I wrote a few poems. I wrote a bunch of um, uh, reflections and articles. By the way, as we speak now, an important newspaper in Florida just published, published uh, one of my articles a few minutes ago. And I'm, I'm very happy, very proud about it because uh, this is the first time some newspaper, you know, published uh, something that I wrote, you know, not about my music, but in, uh, uh, I was talking about my personal experience in my life and my career of 60 years playing music nonstop. <laughs> and, um, but I, I swear to God, I, I never experiment, you know, writing that was that was out of my picture you know and then i've been doing and now i'm fascinated you know uh, that it's it's a complete new inspiration for me and it really i having a great time doing doing it and i'm I'm happy, you know, because uh, every day is a new day, and sometimes life su surprises you with new things that you don't even imagine that you have inside. Well, you've been incredibly prolific during the pandemic. I've been following all the videos you've been posting. And one thing that's striking to me, which is evident in the way you're talking about life and probably in your writing as well. Um, they are coming from a very heartfelt place, which I think a lot of the things people share during the pandemic were very kind of uh, professional. <laughs> um, how do you call it? Like 
professional statements for the professional world and what you were putting out it was very beautifully produced and everything but it it it, it felt a little different than a lot of the content that was being put out there in a good way okay i i'm gonna tell you that in terms of um, the the quality of the videos i've been doing they're no no good at all because uh, <laughs> the only thing i find out is uh, uh, an application that called a cappella, mm -hmm. and um, you know, it's, it's very limited in terms of produce something with good quality of sound. And, and for example, you cannot edit anything at all. You cannot use any kind of uh, filter or any kind of uh, river or any kind of, of those things that we need to produce a good quality recording and by the way you cannot fix as i told you you cannot fix anything which is mean you have to nail it at once because if you make even a little mistake during the recording you cannot rewind or, or punch in or do any of those things you have to stop and start again from the top until you got it right, which is very demanding, you know. You feel the pressure that you have to do it right at once, and it's not the kind of very comfortable <laughs> things, you know, when you're playing. Because we're human, you know, and sometimes you, you, you make a clown, you make it something that, uh, 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 that um, you're not happy with, and then you would love to fix that, on the way, but with that problem, we cannot do it. You have to stop and start again and again and again, you know. And sometimes I get tired, you know, to repeat <laughs> the same thing until I feel kind of okay with what I did. But the, the result is, uh, it's just, it, the, for me, every time that you've been posting something, it brings a smile to my face. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. So where where did why did you decide to um, start sharing that kind of thing during the pandemic? Oh, because for many reasons, but you know, to be absolutely honest, it has been my salvation of mm. the frustration to be sitting in my bar at home for forty <laughs> months. Man, that that's not a kind of uh, good inspiration. When you used to been out on the road, play music for 60 years, and then when you are, uh, you know, when you don't have that possibility, you feel a kind of frustration, you know? And, uh, and that things I believe have saved my brain to don't get frustrated and depressed or any of those things, you know? Uh, and also, it gave me the opportunity to still in, to, to, to be in contact with the people, you know, with the people, especially with the people who follow my career and, and enjoy what I do. And uh, uh, for me, that has been a, a, such a, a, a wonderful uh, way to stay in touch with the people. So you and share, and share those things. By the way, I'm sorry. And share those things 
completely free, you know. I never charge for anything, or I never put any kind of thing to uh, make a donation or whatever. No, 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 I don't want to get in, the, in those kind of things, you know. I, I don't want to feel comfortable about that. I prefer to just put it there publicly and, uh, and completely free. Everybody have just press the button and play the music. So I'm curious now, since the you're, you're working on your album, on a new album, this must feel like a very different process than what you probably had over uh, 60 years of very, very busy, uh, you know, concert schedule leading mm -hmm. up to every album. How does, how, how is everything? And I don't just mean the videos and the music that you've been making, but how does the fact that you're writing now and writing poems, is that, has that changed so, your creative process in this case? You know, you know, now I really have a lot more material to pick and choose from, you know, which is, is, is good because we don't have to be under pressure to create new things or whatever. I got so many options to choose from. And, and, and that's exactly what we have been doing. We have been listening to all the things that has been writing and, and um, recording on all the things. And then we pick a selection of those things and that's gonna be the new album. But of course, that's gonna be recorded properly in the studio with all the, you know, all the tools that we need to, to make good sound. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've asked this of a couple people like uh, Hokan Hardenberger who, is my teacher, but other people like that. Uh, you've had such a long career. Like, I, I just wonder how how do you keep uh, yourself going? And I don't mean that because it's hard to be an artist, but like, what is your drive in in creative endeavors? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, I know that's a big question, but you know, no, but but it's easy. It's easy, you know. I always say that I'm never going to get tired to repeat that music literally saved my life. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, of the countryside of the undeveloped and third world island. I barely make a school, but by the way, I, I, I don't even believe I finished in sixth grade. And um, my family was extremely poor, you know, and, and I was a kind of, in certain way, a hopeless. Oh my goodness! Uh, see, the arrival is not for a COVID. Oh, shut up! I'm sorry. I'm sure I'll get mine. In, I'm sure I'll get mine in a second. <laughs> yeah, it's an alarm about uh, something from the vaccination. Something. I, yeah. I got my two vaccination two months. Yeah, me too. <laughs> second one two months ago. Yeah. Okay, what I was telling you is, is uh, I was a kind of hopeless kid, you know, and um, and the music get to me, and I don't know how or exactly when, because my father was a car mechanic. Nobody in my family before or after me has been involved in music at all. I was the first one in the family, and. Um, and, and, and I started in the music when I was probably 10 years old, 10, 10 years old, something like that, maybe nine, 10, around there. And a year and a half 
after I was playing gig with local band in my village. I was 11 years old. That was exactly in 1961, which is mean, you know, mathematics is fixed. <laughs> and <laughs> that was exactly 60 years ago. 60 years ago. That we say so fast, but man, when you put together 60 years playing, especially the trumpet, which is such a hard instrument. Trumpet is, is, is such a, a demanding instrument and, and, and it mercy less. Trumpet never give you a break, you know. <laughs> if, we, if you abandon the trumpet for a day, the trumpet send you a bill. And every every day you open a trumpet case, it's like opening a Pandora box. <laughs> you never you never know what you're gonna find. <laughs> the trumpet could be very ungrateful and, and also could surprise you even when you're expecting that you are you will you will not be in a good shape. And sometimes you say, Wow, I can't believe it. I was expecting the contrary, and then I feel good today. <laughs> you know, Trump is always a surprise. Unfortunately, you, we can, we cannot, like the canola expression say, we cannot sleep on the laurels. Laurels. You, you ever hear that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I'm curious if you started, you say you started at 10 and we're playing basically gigs at 11. And how, um, how do you think that helped or didn't help in your transition to like a, a professional career of the level that, that would eventually become like, because you're, you're living in a world that most 11 year olds are not living, you yeah. know, <laughs> you know, but I, I felt the passion of music, even from the very beginning, you know, it was something that really grab my soul and I say, man, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I stopped playing by ear, by the way, you know. <laughs> and I play all those gigs, learning the tunes by ear and play with local band in my village. And, and uh, by the way, that was the only very traditional Cuban music, you know, what they call song, S-O-N. <laughs> song you know which is the, the basic rhythm of, of all the other rhythm that came after after that and um later on in 1964 i i found an application in the newspaper for a school uh, a, a school art and I felt the application and uh, they asked me to go very far from my place. I was 13 years old when I went far away in a bus to make that kind of, uh, kind of test of attitude, you know, of the mus musicality or something, you know, those kind of things. I granted, you know, they granted the, the, the scholarship for me for three years and I was that and there I started learning to read music properly and I did some uh, classical training basically because in that school we weren't allowed to play listen or talk about nothing but classical music which was kind of um, 
ironic kind of situation in, in a country which produce music to all over the world, you know, to, to be shared with the world all over, you know, and, and, and um, but anyway, that was the way that school was. And, um, and I'm, I don't regret because I, I get a, a, a kind of classical training, you know, for three years. Later on, I start to play with these different bands in, in Havana, you know. After that, I moved to Havana because I, I born and raised in, in, in the countryside, the very countryside, the middle of where the small village. <laughs> and I'm, I moved to Havana. I started to play with different orchestra. How how did Havana look at that time? Because this is after the the revolution. Like, what was the the, the where were the bands playing? Was this only for hotels or? It, or... Yeah, it was. Uh, it was all kind of opportunity, you know. Uh, uh, in those years, still a big number of hotels. And all of them has their their own big band, mm. amongst other things. And uh, we play also for dance dancing, you know, in, in, in places where the people basically go to dance. That's it. And I did that too. And um, and um, later on, everything started to get so complicated. In 1958, until. January 1st of 1959, Cuba was one of the most prosperous countries in the world, mm -hmm. even being a small island in the middle of the Caribbean. Cuba was so prosperous, man. Mm -hmm. It was something beyond comprehension uh, how the, the development of the island went so ahead of a lot of big time countries from the third world, you know. And and, uh, and, and, and that's the thing I grew up. I, I was nine years old in 1959. And uh, and I remember, you know, not very clear, but I, I remember how was our life before 59 mm -hmm. and what happened after 59, which has made a huge division in our life in every matter. And uh, for example, I'm gonna give you an example. My father went to the school. He got a scholarship as well. I'm talking about in the 40s. And he learned uh, 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 car mechanic, you know, that was his, what he studied in the school. And uh, he came out of the school and uh, started working in the um, garage that was owned by the, a couple of brothers from Spain. And um, working there, one day he played one little number of the lottery on the lotto and he got it. Not a big thing, but enough money to put together his own garage and start his own private business. After that, right after that, he met my future mother and they, they get married and then I was born later on. Okay, but our life 
for all those first nine years of my life, it was a kind of normal. We weren't rich or anything like it, but we enjoy life and we have a decent food three, three times a day. And I got some clothes to wear and all that. After 59, the dictatorship, the government, confiscated his garage, like every other private business. And then from there on, our life became miserable. My father started to work for the government, for the government, like everybody else. And then he was getting a miserable salary of 132 pesos a month. That was good for nothing. And then my mother started to cry because she cannot buy me a pair of shoes. I don't basically don't have a, a clothes to wear. And, and he was, she was crying because I got to go to the school with a lower shoes with a big hole in the sole, and then he got to put a piece of, uh, of carton, carton board or something to avoid my socks hit the, the street, you know, touch the street, things like that. And, you know, I life changed completely. And later on, you know, one more time, music get to me. And that changed completely my perspective of life in general. And I was obsessed to learn music. I really want to learn. I really want to become a musician, no matter what. Even when I mentioned in the beginning in my home that I want to be a musician, everybody said, what? <laughs> What the heck are you talking about? Musician? No way. Are you crazy? No, 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 no. You, you're going to have a miserable life. <laughs> Musician had a bunch of uh, drunkards and, and, and drug addicts and, and they're going to be struggling to make a penny. And, you know, they were, my, my parents were right. <laughs> but talking about that I've been extremely blessed by God because I never ever listen to me never ever touch any kind of drug ever and in the last number of years I don't know how many I forgot already I even stopped drinking alcohol. I never was drinking, you know. Sometimes <laughs> I got a beer once in a while or a little glass of wine or something like that. But not even that. For a bunch of years, I, for no reason, I stopped drinking alcohol. I don't drink alcohol. I never did. I never will do any kind of drugs. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to be 72 years of age this year. And I, I mean, health-wise, I, I feel 100%, man. I'm, I'm so lucky. And um, even my doctor, every time I do those regular tests, I do every six months or something, he always called me to congratulate me, you know, and I say, man, you're so lucky. Every, all the parameters of your health are in perfect shape. You are okay, you are okay, you are okay. And then that, 
that's good. I, you know, and I'm, I hope I'm going to be able to keep blowing the horn for a few more years. I don't know. That's in the hands of God. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's I want to share with you something that I like very much. I don't know who said it, but I heard that years ago. He said, it's a saying that said, if you want to see God laughing very hard, tell him about your plans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I, I, I love that and agree 150% because I believe that what it passed is history. We have no control whatsoever. Mm -hmm. and, on. and whatever is gonna happen in the future in the future is in the hands of God. My concept, my philosophy is to concentrate in these 24 hours that going on today <laughs> and try to do your best in every sense. That's the only thing you should concentrate about. And and do it every day and tomorrow start from scratch again and do it one more time, you know, and forget about what is the history or forget about you have no control in the future. But if, if you do your best and you open your eyes in the morning with a positive, a positive attitude and, and you really do what you supposed supposed to do, practice to take care of your thing and to try to learn a new things, to read a book, to be responsible, you know, to do your best job when you jump on a stage because of respect to the music or respect to the audience, we must give our 100% in every performance. Yeah, I mean, that's phenomenal advice. It's a better way of living life, I think, <laughs> especially today. It's, it's, right? it's simple, but uh, uh, I strongly believe that it adjusts to the reality. Yes, know? yes. And uh, it's, it's nothing better than the marvelous reality. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, let, let me ask you um, about the, you know, Latin jazz movement <laughs> in that era in the 60s and going into the 80s and all that. Yeah. How how did Cuba factor into that uh, because of that moment that was being lived? Or or was that something that the Cuban musicians j jumped into once uh, they reached Miami, New York? And uh... OK, let me mm, let me tell you a little bit about a, about the history of that, of that mm -hmm. the creation of that thing. By the way, the people who created, which is are completely disagree that somebody later over the years changed the name of the that music genre and start calling Latin jazz because the creators they name it Afro-Cuban jazz. I'm talking about two Cubans and one American. The first one are responsible for the whole fusion of that things they call Afro-Cuban jazz was Mario Bausa. Mario Bausa was an incredible Cuban musician. He was a clarinet soloist in the National Symphony in, in Havana, in Cuba. He came to New York in the 20s and uh, he uh, 
he was an incredible musician. He he was a, a, a musical director of Fletcher Henderson or Chip Webb or or and, and also of Cat Calloway, all those bands. He was the MD and the lead trumpet player and the first alto as well. He was an incredible musician. Okay, in 1946, he went back to Cuba on vacation after the Civil War, you know. And then he met there a guy, very uh, peculiar character, you know, he, uh, his name was Luciano Chano Pozo. He was a percussionist and, and an incredible percussionist and also an amazing dancer. And he met him on the street, dancing and playing his conga and, and all the things. And then he was impressed with Chano. The bottom line is he took Chano with him back to New York. And he went to see Dizzy Gillespie. And Mario told Dizzy, hey, from now on, because what, by the way, when I met Mario, in June 1978, Dizzy introduced us. And Dizzy told me, Arturo, Mario is like a father to me. I owe him everything. When I came to New York for the first time, Mario was the guy who gave me all kind of opportunities, you know, and he put me in a lot of good gates and he opens a lot of door for me. Okay, uh, and and, Mario, when he went to Dizzy with Channel, he said, hey, Dizzy, from now on, this guy gonna start playing with you in the band. And Dizzy said, what? He said, yes, you hear me. <laughs> and then Channel started talking, talking not, describing to Dizzy because Channel never learned how to say a word in English, zero. He didn't have the opportunity because in, in a year and a half, he was killed in the bar in Harlem. Mm. He, 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 he was in, in the US only a year and a half. Mm. But in that year and a half, him and this Gillespie create a complete new style of music. Mario was of course involved in all those, in, in all that process, you know. But African jazz was nothing else than bebop with a Cuban percussion and a Cuban rhythm. And th that kind of combination, when it's well done, is an amazing style of music. It's very powerful because they have the, the language of the intricate and the most beautiful style within jazz. For me, it's bebop. <laughs> and also have the strong rhythm behind that. And when you put those things together, man, it, it, it's, it's something that people get so excited, you know, about and, 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 and it's like two powerful things join, you know, effort and creating a new thing. And, um, Later on, as I told you before, some people start to call that Latin jazz. By the way, the word Latin is a stupidity, is a barbarism. <laughs> because 
Latin is an ancient language that the Roman used to speak way, way back, centuries ago, and later on became the official language of the Catholic Church. This is what is Latin. If you want to call it Latino, or all other things, maybe, maybe, you know, that passed the test. But you say, when you say Latin jazz, oh my goodness, that always bothered me to hear that, that combination of words, you know, because it's non, don't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, um, you know, in 1967, I got a great opportunity in my life. When I came out of that school of the classical music, I started playing with a big band they put together in Havana. They called Orquesta Cubana de Musica Moderna. Cuban Orchestra of Modern Music is what they call. It was an incredible big band. I tell you, it was an incredible big band. A group of the best musicians in the country. And, and that band sounds amazing, amazing. For me, it was like a, a real school because I just came out of the school of classical music, but I never have an, uh, before an opportunity to play in a big band in a session. I, I, I didn't have any idea how to phrase or how to uh, play well in a session. By the way, it was six trumpets, five trombones, and six saxophones. It's massive. Complete uh, rhythm section with three percussionists, two drummers, bass, guitar, keyboard, piano. It was a huge orchestra. And, um, and uh, for me, it was like a big school, you know, to learn all those things. So far, I never hear any jazz. One day, a journalist, he was a big jazz fan, you know, he was talking to me and he said, Toto, you ever hear any jazz music? I said, no, what's that? He said, come with me. And then he played for me an album, you know, a vinyl of Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, a compilation that was, I think it was released in, by the uh, a British, a British label. And um, I listened to that and I was in shock, of course. And I still, after, so many, many, many years, I still remember that moment, the impression that I got, you know, when I heard that music and I say, damn, what is this? What those people are doing, you know? And then, of course, after that, I, I became even more obsessed with music. And I want to learn how to play bebop. And I, I, I still in that mission, how to learn how to play bebop because bebop is so it is so profound man is i strongly believe if you became a good bebop player you could approach any kind of other style of music without without problem you know because that that music demand on you such a First, first of all, demanding you a very fine technique in your instrument. 
you cannot be dealing with limitation if you want to play bebop. That's number one. And number two, you have to think so fast because the phrases and the core passing so fast that if you don't have your mind sharp into that thing, you're gonna land it too far after. <laughs> and then you, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, too far before. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're gonna be way behind and dragging or whatever, you know, and then, uh, you know, those kind of things. And, and um, I, 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 you I, I, know, I never get tired to, listen to great bebop players so know, the, i have a question about that then like from the moment you first hear it and then obviously you ended up uh, having a pretty good relationship with dizzy which is that came have, more later. yeah but that, that must have been a, a trip too to end up in in that uh but how how was that uh, did, did you then was did that open a door to a lot of listening to 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 bebop or how did you then start entering that world uh, unfortunately in cuba we didn't have we don't even have a, a record store mm -hmm. where you could go and buy a record mm -hmm. forget about it. the only thing we discovered later on it was the show wave radio transmission from washington dc on the in show wave in the in the the, the station they call uh, uh the voice of america uh, he was a gentleman he was the host of that program for many 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 years he was an icon in the in the world of music you know his name was willis canover willis canover he got that program for many years of 45 minutes every day from monday to friday we never missed any of those programs we listened to that religiously every day every day that was the only way we had to to be informed and to learn about the style a little more in depth but not only that to to be aware of what was what uh, was going on in 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 the in the jazz uh, uh, industry in the jazz uh, uh, atmosphere you know and who was playing with who who recorded with who who's playing in what place all those kind of things we learned from that program. And by the way, later on in 1971, I was called to the obligatory military service. That was a big disaster in my life for three years, by the way, three full years. I, I have to forget about the trumpet, I have to forget about the music. I was cleaning cannons and marching and doing those kind of things and military things and all those kind of things. That was our life, my life for three years. But I never stopped listening to that program. One day I was listening to that radio program in one corner of the barrack of the place where, you know, where I was in the, in the army. And the sergeant catched me listening to that. He hears somebody speaking English and they put me in jail for three and a half months because I was listening to the voice of the enemy. And I explained to them, I said, guys, listen, I don't even speak English. I don't understand what they saying. I listen to this program because it's about jazz and only about jazz. 
that's my passion and I want to be involved and I want to hear that music, that's it. It, it shouldn't have another implication. But uh, no, they never listened to me and they put me in jail for three and a half months. That was another lesson for me that I was living in the wrong country with the wrong government. And uh, that created a kind of uh, consciousness in me that somehow I have to leave the country. Mm -hmm. And then I was with that in my mind for so many years. Unfortunately, I couldn't leave before because I, right after I get married and I, my son was born and I, I refused to leave the country and leave my wife and son behind. And that, that took so many years and until 1990 that I was able to leave the country because the Cuban government made a terrible mistake they gave us a special, a special, very special permission to my wife and son to travel to Europe and join me there for a show vacation. Mm -hmm. But let's rewind a little bit. In May of 77, somebody called me my home in the phone and I said, Arturo, uh, it was a friend of mine. He used to play saxophone in a famous uh, cabaret or nightclub or Tropicana. And uh, I played with him when I was very young there for a while, and we became friends. But after that, he quit the music and, and, and became the president of a musician union. Hmm. He called me and he said, Arturo, this conversation never happened, okay? You, you cannot repeat or mention my name because I kill you. <laughs> and uh, he said, this afternoon is a, it's a jazz cruise, a boat, I'm gonna arrive in Havana and this Gillespie is coming in that boat. I said, oh man, what kind of joke is that? He said, no man, I'm very serious. <laughs> okay, I went to the harbor and then when I was there waiting, the boat arrived. And when I saw DC coming down the stairs, I said, oh, oh, oh my goodness. And I said to myself, what I gonna do now because I don't know how to say a single word in English. How I gonna communicate with my hero, the guy I admire so much, is my idol. And I was so lucky, man, because God always has been so good to me. When he was walking toward me, it was a guy who walks right behind him and start talking to me in perfect Spanish. He was a percussionist from New York. He was original from Guatemala. And he was playing the percussion in the boat with the gray Stan Getz. Mm. He started talking to me in Spanish and then he started asking me a bunch of questions. And he said, do you know this guy? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he said, are you a musician? I said, no, no, no. <laughs> I was embarrassed, you know, to, to say that I was a trumpet player in front, of, in front of this Gillespie. And I shut my mouth and I said, no, 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 no. I'm just a big fan of him. Okay, bottom line. Okay, bottom line. And he jumped in my car and then he asked me to show him Havana for the very first time. He never been there before. As me, among everybody in the island, we were confused. And we thought that this came to Cuba 
in the 40s and 50s or 60 or something, but no, he never went there before until May 77. Wow. And then I, I drove in all over the city. He asked me to go here and there. And, I, you know, he wanted to see the, the city for the first time. Later on that evening, the government organized like a jam session in the hotel ballroom. And then when he came there and he saw me warming up with the trumpet backstage, he opened his eyes like this and he said, what the hell my driver is doing with the trumpet? <laughs> and somebody said, Mr. Gillespie, no, he's a trumpet. They say, hell no, he's my driver. Okay. <laughs> And then we play with the band I was playing at that time by the name of Irakere. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we play for them first, and then we play together. But we play a bunch of tunes for them. And of course, I knew a bunch of lines and licks of busy, you know, and I started playing all those things. And he was laughing so hard, you know. And he was, you know, having a blast. He was having a, a great time. And we too, of course. And then later on, we played together. And, and man, that was the beginning of a, what I consider like a, a, a blessing, a bless for me to, to, when you have the opportunity to meet your own hero, <clears throat> and later on, you became a close friend of your hero, and you start playing with your hero. Man, I was pinching, you know, my skin. I said, oh, my goodness, I'm dreaming of this is true. Uh, what was this? And um, he, after that, he was instrumental of many good things that happened to us later on. In the beginning, that was May 77. Okay. By the end of 77, we were doing rehearsal with Irakere in some place in Havana. And then a guy came to the rehearsal and sit down there. It was like a small theater in the school, in one school there. He was sitting there for the whole rehearsal. We noticed right away that he was a foreigner, you know. He, he looks like a real gringo, blue eyes, you know. <laughs> and um, a very tall guy. And, and we were, you know, like a... And, you know, saying, who's that guy? And what he's doing over here <laughs> for three hours, listening to the rehearsal. Okay. Later on, he came to us with the translator. He introduced himself and said, my, na my name is Bruce Lundborg. I'm a pre president of uh, CBS Records. And I'm here because since May, this Gillespie has been talking about this band. And I couldn't believe it. And that's the reason I flew to Havana to hear myself what that what is that band, that <laughs> band that DC Lesbian talking about. And then I confess to you that he was right. I would love to sign you on CBS. And he signed us for three years, 78, 79, 80. We we were um uh, 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 CBS artists. Believe it or not. And in June of 78, they, CBS put us on the plane and flew us to New York. From there, in the little bus, they took us to the sound check the very first day ever in the US. They took us to the sound check for the jazz festival at Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. 
and we played the very first night ever at Carnegie Hall. Later on, during that, the end of the set, Maynard Ferguson and Stan Getz joined us on stage and played the last couple of tunes with us. When, uh, by the way, we played the second half of the program. The first half was two piano trios. That was Mary Lou Williams' piano trio and Bill Evans' piano trio. And we played the second half of the program. That was in New York, but was part of the Newport Jazz Festival because the year before, that was a big trouble, big fight, big problem in Newport Jazz Festival. And then they decided to do it in the city of New mm. York, in the Carnegie Hall. Okay, that, that was, you know, a key point in our that, life. That's a good course. start. That's a good start. Oh, my, oh, <laughs> I, 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 I cannot describe the emotion that we felt, you know. Um, by the way, from there, they put us in another plane and they flew us to Montreux Jazz Festival mm. in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And since like that, the year after, 79, CBS flew us again, one more time to, to, to the US. And then we were, we were for three months in the bus, open the show of Stephen Steele. Do you remember that trio still Natch and John? Yeah, yeah. Okay, they separate and then they mm -hmm. get her, their own career on their own, you know. And then we did that opening act for Stephen Steele for three months all over the US. It was a kind of a funny situation because the people in the audience, they all came to hear Stephen Steele, you know, they, and then there was a bunch of crazy people playing the music that they don't even understand. And, uh, and it was a kind of, I, I believed in somehow they make a little resistance in the beginning, but later on they accepted. I say, okay, okay. I don't understand that, but um, they're a good musician. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, I start playing with Dizzy until he passed away. January 6, 93. That was a very sad day in every life of the people who admire and respect him so much because he was the father of the creation of complete new style in music. Together with Stellonis Monk and Charlie Parker and other couple of people, but this was the guy with those crazy advanced idea that a lot of musicians in that era not even could describe mm. or understand what Dizzy was doing. And um, I don't want to mention any name, but big name in the jazz business criticized this so hard, so bad, you know. And they even called that a kind of Chinese music in mm. a very despective, despective way, you know. But uh, the problem is, his mentality, his creation, his music was way beyond the comprehension, you know. And, and that is very demonstrated that over the year, we're still trying to figure it out what Charlie Parker and Dizzy were, were playing, you know. That's the, the, the importance of that genre. Yeah, the, the harmonic genius of the two of them is something oh, out of this world. Money. It's it's insane to think about. I know that we get the finished product. They probably sat for many hours in the studio, but uh, the harmonic understanding of the two of them 
Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie is oh my is mythical. I mean, it's beyond beyond imagination. And also, I'm gonna tell you something. In that era, the the results of uh, I mean the 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 the, the tools on on any studio recording were so limited. You know, yeah. we're not talking about punch in and do this and mm -hmm. edit here, edit this. That was like a big tape, <laughs> yes. you know, and it is exactly like that application I was mentioning before, you know, it, 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 you have to nail it at once, otherwise you have to start from scratch again. And even though the quality of the recording weren't especially good, the essence of the music is there. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You still want to it hear it. Oh, man, you want to hear it. And you have a lot of things to learn from. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an insanely interesting era in music in general, but obviously jazz in particular, because uh, all of what is considered jazz. <laughs> you know, before that was the splendor of a swing era. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about right. and then this came out and everybody said hey hey what is that and he replied Bebop. Yeah. <laughs> Bebop and get ready because we're going to stay alive for a while. You know, you're going to have to deal with us and our, and our music. Well, it also marked the transition from, uh, I'm going to be careful how I say this, but it marked the transition from kind of like utility music, so like party music, to something that completely transcended into like, high art if you would or something like that i yeah. mean the analysis you can get into into some of these things is 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 vast yes it, it, it definitely it was a music that you have to carefully pay attention you know yes you, you cannot be in the elevator and appreciate bebop correctly <laughs> or you can establish in the conversation and pretend that you're gonna get it when they play bebop no but I must say that even though it was a lot of people that used to dance that kind of music right. when they played, right. even if it was so intricate and difficult and profound and all the things, a lot of people still dancing with that music. Yes, that's why I wanted to be careful because I don't want to minimize uh, something that's popular should not be minimized to not be very profound. I don't want to make that. No, you yeah. know, you're right. You're, you're safe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and then like, how, how do you see that? Um, I mean, that energy seems so alive in, in its era and in the recordings of the time and well into the nineties. How, how do how do you relate to the way that, that, that bebop particularly is being made now that it, it's become an academic subject at a university, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm going to tell you the very truth. Some people get very pessimist about the 
current things mm-hmm. in the music in general. But I strongly believe that is a, a big bunch of very young people around the world mm-hmm. that they're doing an incredible job to keep that important tradition alive. And they became serious jazz musicians. They love jazz. They even developed ideas and things into the new horizon. And we must embrace and appreciate that and give our respect, you know, offer our respect and appreciation for for what they do to conserve that important legacy, which I strongly believe is the most important art creation in the US, mm-hmm. which is jazz music. I, I strong about that. And at the same token, I, I, I feel very sad that jazz doesn't have the exposure uh, and, and the promotion and attention that it really deserves. Deserve. I, I, that really made me feel sad. I live in the US for 31 years and I'm telling you that I never saw one minute of jazz in any of the um, TV station, mainly uh, I'm talking about the networks, you know, the big TV uh, station. I never saw a minute of jazz. I consider that a crime. I consider that a crime. And I'm going to tell you, you go to Europe or Japan or any country, or even North Europe in the Scandinavia and all these countries. In a Saturday night at 9 p.m., you turn the television and you have a good chance to see a couple hours of any of the major jazz festivals. Mm-hmm. Those people love, appreciate, and, and follow jazz music with devotion, you know. And this should happen in America too. And we it, it don't really it, it, we, it, we don't really appreciate and conserve that important uh, uh, tradition and legacy, I think is completely unfair. Yes. And also, I mean, I, I'm seeing it now with COVID, for example. The, one of the things that was very sad for me uh, here in LA, you saw like the nonprofit relief for all the orchestras and all the chamber groups and maybe not to the degree some people wanted, but uh, I, at the same time, you saw things like jazz clubs closing left and right that were historic oh, institutions. Oh, yeah. trouble. And I couldn't believe it because in my mind, it's a little bit like what you're saying. First of all, jazz is more important to the people of America. Like probably the average person cares more about that than a symphonic concert. But also, these clubs were are giving something culturally more important for the lifeblood of American culture. Absolutely, absolutely agree. And uh, you know, we no matter what. I don't know if this is uh, I'm uh, implying other people, but I'm talking about what I believe is I'm gonna try my best to keep saving and representing and defending that important tradition and important legacy for the rest of my days. I have no doubts about it. 
And in that mission, and I'm never gonna get tired. Doesn't matter if I have to pray for three people. Doesn't matter if I'm gonna be struggling to make my living, money-wise. I don't care. But this is my obligation because that's what I really is the substance of my uh, passion for music. Is something that made my life completely different, and I owe to that a lot. And I must do actions, not only talk, but I have to do it in the daily basis. That's my uh, goal, and that's what I'm gonna continue doing for the rest of my days. That's a good enough thing to to want to do, I guess. <laughs> okay, my friend, thank you yeah, so much. For thank you. Thank you, I really appreciate that. I, I hope we can do this again. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about, and you know, I'm I, I have to. T I'll go to Spanish now. But eh, he escuchado su música maestro desde muy muy joven. Eh, eh, cero palabras para describir lo que ha significado eh, bueno, su carrera para mí. Te agradezco mucho. No, bueno, un abrazo y, y déjame saber cuándo va a salir esto al aire. Claro que sí, y, y si hay alguna fecha que, es, que sea mejor para que salga, que coincida con...